0: Had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story. What's yours? Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 22 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your continued support. This episode features a chat with author Greg Oliver, who I've known for about 18 years now. Back in 2003, Greg wrote a piece about a sketch character I was playing on a CBC after-school show. Bad Dog Tremblay was a French-Canadian wrestler that I had based on two of my favorite tag team wrestlers from Montreal known as the Vachon Brothers. Paul, or Butcher Vachon, the youngest of the Vachon Brothers, was a fan of the goofy sketches I was appearing in and suggested that Greg Oliver interview me for an upcoming article for Slam Wrestling. Based on that conversation between Greg and Butcher, on October the 28th of 2003, the article, A Bad Dog Aimed at Kids, was published. If you Google it, you can still find it. Eighteen years later, we've come full circle, and now I am chatting with Greg about his latest book about the legendary Canadian actor, writer, singer, songwriter, pitchman, and TV host, Billy Vann. That book is titled, Who's the Man? Billy Vann. I first became a massive fan of Billy Vann's when I discovered the iconic cult classic kids show, The Hillary's House of Frightenstein, in the 1970s. What I didn't know was how many other big shows Billy had been a part of that I'd missed out on, or that I was reminded of as I read Greg's book. So let's get right into it. Here is my conversation with Greg Oliver about the late, great Billy Van. Hello, Greg. How you doing, man? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for being on the show. We've, we've come full circle. I, was, uh, um, I pulled up the article that you wrote about the character Bad Dog I did, and that was 17 years ago. So we've come full circle. Now, I'm the, the interviewer, which is pretty cool.
1: It is, it is kind of amazing when I look back, like I've been writing about professional wrestling for 35 years. So there's a lot of those occurrences, like even my old newsletter, I ended up hiring some of the kids who used to get my wrestling newsletter to work with me at, at canoe.ca, which was the son's uh, website. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful world sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that was a really cool experience because if I remember how this went down, uh, so at the time I had, I had pitched this idea for a character. It ended up being on this, on CBC, it was a wrestling character. Uh, uh, meeting you know a wrestling character based on the Vachon brothers who you you know very well and you knew you were especially good friends I guess with Butcher and I had I had reached out to Butcher and uh to Mad Dog to say you know I've done this sketch if you see it it's a you know homage to you and and I guess uh, Butcher had got in touch with you and said oh this this kid's doing this thing and uh, and then you ended up interviewing me.
1: That sounds about right. It's funny. Like I ended up lifelong friends with butcher because he was in Toronto and the Expos happened to be playing the blue Jays. Yeah. And I called in a favor and uh, not only did I score him tickets, but they put him on the jumbotron. (laughs) And so he just loved that. Like old wrestlers still love being in the spotlight. Yeah. So I, that, that I talked to him a week or two ago. So that's amazing. Yeah. He's still going.
0: Yeah. And where does he live? He lives down in the States. Right.
1: No, he's actually right on the border, essentially from Vermont and Quebec, but on the Quebec side. Oh, okay. So if, if there wasn't a border closed, they would be down there. He does uh, Santa Claus every Christmas uh, at a mall in, in on the other side in Vermont, but this yeah. year he had to do it virtually. So they're still out there, man. But your your bad dog lives on too, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you that, still get fan letters. Yeah, well, I don't
0: know about that. But it, when I post stuff about it every once in a while, like, you know, some of the I, I get some nice nice posts back and stuff and, and comments about you know it was a fun fun uh, character and stuff. Um, one of the really cool things about that too was that you know Butcher's such a generous person that when we started shooting these things, I'd put on on DVD and I'd send him copies, and then he'd send me like envelopes full of black and white and color photos and like old press stuff and and you name it. I I must have had like about uh, 25 different photos of different eras of him and his brother and his sister. And, um, it was pretty, it was pretty nice of them to do that. I had fr- some of them framed and put up my office, uh, my various offices over the years too. Cool. Yeah. But let's get down to uh, what uh, what we're going to be talking about today. And that is that you've been writing books for a long time. You've been writing about wrestling and, and hockey. You've written a couple of kids books. Uh, so you've got 16 books in total. And your newest book is called Who's the Man? Billy Van. And uh, and it focuses on a great Canadian actor that we both uh, know and love that uh, well, a lot of people of our generation mostly knew him from the hilarious House of Frightenstein. But of course, he had a very expansive career. And that's what your book is about. So, what uh, what drew you to Billy Van?
1: Uh, well, I think as you said there, I mean, it, it was those of us of a certain age. We saw Billy Van on the Fright, Hilarious House of Frightenstein. We saw him on Party Game. And then you saw him pop up everywhere else. And it's like, oh, that's him on King, Kings of Kensington. That That's him on Bazaar. Mm-hmm. That's him here. He he was a chameleon. He could really change it up. And, and I, he always had work. I guess that's the key. Um, so... There was that element to it, but it all ties in the wrestling as it usually does. Uh, Rotten Reggie Love was an old wrestler, and he'd uh, been on Bizarre often. And that's a show that Billy Van was on. So I ended up talking to John Biner, who was the star of Bizarre, (laughs) about uh, Rotten Reggie Love. And then um, that led me talking a little bit about Billy Van and how much I loved Billy Van. And, And John Biner shared some touching stories about how they kept in touch right to the end kind of thing. And so I knew there was something there. And at the around the same time, Stacy Case, who's my co-writer, uh, he's a <laughs> he's an interesting character in and of himself. Between running the Pillow Fighting League and um, you know his Trash Palace movies that he used to show in his uh, workspace, and and all these other things he's done. Uh, on one time, we went down to the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame together, which was about a five hour drive. So we had lots of time to talk, and uh, we talked about Frightenstein and this and that. And, and he had gotten a copy of an unpublished memoir that Billy Van had written. So that was sort of the basis for me then applying for a grant uh, to try to do it. And that was like a, a dozen years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would just happen to be an Ontario arts grant. You didn't have to actually report on it, but they certainly never gave me any for wrestling or hockey, mm-hmm. but they gave me one for entertainment. So I did come through in case anybody's out there listening, I finally <laughs> came through um, but yeah, he, he was just a fascinating character. And the more and more I dove into it, the more and more I wanted to know. Because his memoir was just some of his select stories from acting. Mm-hmm. It told you nothing about him as a person. It left out huge sw- swaths of his career. Like he didn't talk about um, his starring roles on CBC, where he was a star in, in various movies or yeah, I guess telenovels or whatever we want to call them today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the guy was a, a leading man but he didn't like doing that. He actually called that memoir second banana because he, didn't see himself as a leading man, right? And I like to think that this book is is changing the perception of him.
0: Yeah, and he he's really I mean it was fascinating to read the book. First of all, it was a great book, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I the thing, there's a couple of things I loved about it. And you know, aside from just you know the fact that it was Billy Van's story, um, one of them was it just reminded me of of the lives of a lot of people I know. And m- much like you probably your own life, uh, working in the arts and being an artist and being a writer, is that you really have to hustle and you've got to have a lot of gear over the years and you're always looking for the next thing and it was easy, it was interesting to watch his progression because he goes from essentially a vaudeville artist a singer he he sang in about four or five different groups that, that had varying degrees of uh popularity and success I got to travel to Europe and and um, uh, you know was uh, got to, to uh, uh, he worked on different albums and stuff and then he became he, he had his own singing group, the uh, what are they called the the Billy Van Four? Yep. that uh, that performed on all kinds of different shows and and got to travel and played at you know uh, uh, on different variety shows. and then and then he makes the move from there to to acting and comedy and and so on and so forth. He really runs the gamut of all the different sort of uh, uh, rungs on the ladder of of uh, of uh, success in the, in the entertainment business in that era. And it's interesting too that it's just an era that's gone that's gone and forever. And but it's interesting to read about how these people got those gigs back in the day, like you talked about in the book about like we're just walking into audition at offices at the CBC or whatever.
1: Yeah, I, I and I really enjoyed studying some of that aspect and talking to those people because I didn't like. Somebody like a Pam Hyatt, or continually kind of thing, but she didn't really overlap with Billy a lot. But she was able to really sort of explain that process, right? It was about who you knew, and that could have been the secretary, right? So the Mm -hmm. secretary says, "Hey, I just, you know, the boss is starting a cast for this. You'd you'd probably be right." So, but it was also such a small shop, right? CBC wasn't massive. Everybody went to the same bar, yeah. And even just the fun part, just describing the bar and what was it like, it it. It really rang home for the the few people I've heard from that are in the book and, and they're like the Grant Cowens or um Jack Cooper's that were on CBC back in the fifties and the sixties. It's like, I'm loving this book because I'm reliving my youth and I'm thinking about all these people that I haven't thought about in a long time. Yeah. And as a writer, I mean, that's a different kind of magic than hearing from a fan who loved Billy Van and Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It means I'm hitting it on a couple of different levels. And um, I didn't really set out to do that, especially, but that's certainly how I helped fill in some of the gaps in, in Billy's story.
0: You talk in the book about his early influence and in, in particular in the book, you talk about his influence uh, and his peers' influence on future projects. And one of them is his work on Nightcap, which was a uh, an evening uh, comedy show uh, that was, it was pretty risque at the time or, or avant-garde, right?
1: CBC was not known for, you know, letting their hair down kind of thing. They were really prim and proper. And somehow this CFTO Nightcap got approved and... And it just grew exponentially from there. Essentially, it was Saturday Night Live, right? They, they ran news bits and had the newspapers out. They did comedy sketches. They had guest stars. All these different things put together into this crazy mix that was topical, right? Mm-hmm. So they could make fun of whatever scandal was going on or make fun of like Juliet on CBC, which got them in huge trouble because you're not supposed to make fun of Juliet. But yet they did. You know, yeah. and and they they were thumbing their nose at the establishment, and that to me is exactly what Saturday Night Live did too. Yeah, of course, you know, in at U of T at the time was Lauren Michaels, and Hart Pomerantz, who later became you know their own writing partners and comedic act. Uh, but yeah, Nightcap was fabulous, and it's also an example of how it, it, going viral, I guess, is we can use today's term. I mean, it started in Toronto, and then other stations started picking it up. Windsor wanted it, London. And, and it started getting sort of bicycled to all these different stations and CBC was not known for doing that. Right. They had yeah. like their couple of national programs and that was it. So it was really unique uh, growth that it went through. And then of course, you know, some bureaucrat looks at it, goes, ah, I don't understand this. It's gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but not forgotten like you you mentioned in the book you you've got quotes from various uh, other comedians who talk about, you know, how it was definitely a precursor to as you mentioned SNL but the Frantics in Canada and Kids in the Hall and and uh, a variety of other uh, Canadian uh, comedy shows it became massive uh, massive elsewhere as well.
1: Exactly, it has to start somewhere, right? And one builds in the next in the next uh... Absolutely. I did reach out to all those guys, right? Air Force and and the Frantics. And they all kind of said, well, we didn't know Billy, mm-hmm. but we certainly knew of him and he was an inspiration. So not, not a lot of those guys are really in there. Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall is quoted mm-hmm. just talking about, you know, going home watching Frightenstein. Like he's around our age, right? So that's what we used to do. Yeah.
0: And let, let's talk about Frankenstein for, for, for a bit. I, I remember, I think I first saw it, I'm guessing in about 74 uh, on the air. I'm pretty sure I first saw it when I was, um, my parents lived in uh, Saskatchewan in Regina for two years. And I remember seeing it there. And then I remember coming back to Ontario and living in Ottawa and then seeing it on whoever picked it up there in, in Ottawa and watching it for a few years on and off. And I guess the thing I loved about it and was one of the reasons I was inspired to get into kids' television is it just, it was just like, you could tell that they were doing it on a shoestring budget. But wow, I mean, the stuff that they did with with the money they had. And uh, I think, what did they do? How many seasons in nine months? Five, is it five seasons?
1: <laughs> they did 130 episodes in nine months. That's just insane. Yeah, That's exactly. Crazy. I mean, it, it's impossible today. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing story. And it's also one of those early examples of syndication, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Riff Markowitz was the producer, and he also did Party Game. And they, they do coincide. Um, and that's important to note because he built up this little syndication empire mm-hmm. and was able to send out the shows uh, across the country so brent butt from corner gas never saw frightenstein and he was in saskatchewan growing up but he saw party game right. so that's where he knew billy van from and he knew him from sunny and share but frightenstein was this little you know show that could that was filmed in in hamilton at chch over an intense nine month period but the crazy thing is that You can't think of it as they filmed the shows because they didn't. They filmed the segments. Mm -hmm. So Billy was the Wolfman for five, six straight days. And they filmed all those. And then, you know, Billy was Griselda and then Billy was the Oracle. And Mm -hmm. uh, he was never even there when Vincent Price was there. Like he never met him until years later. So it, it was a really unique way to film a show, too. Uh, so a lot of credit goes to obviously Riff Markowitz for coming up with the idea, but also the CHCH crew that, you know, was hired to to work on it. And they they created some magic, including things like that feedback loop that they danced to, which was mm-hmm. new technology. Yeah, You know, it was sort of an accident. And we describe in detail, uh, one of the CHCH guys detailed how that came together. Uh, so yeah, it was an, it was a it was a funny show because it was supposed to be educational too. And yeah. mainly mainly we got laughs out of it. We didn't really realize, oh, the professor's trying to teach us something. Oh Dr. Petfat's trying to teach us something. Yeah. Oh, Uga Booga's trying to teach us something, you know, like he just yeah. Yeah. Even Grammar Slammer. Exactly. Bammer was teaching us something.
0: Yeah, I remember, I remember there was, yeah, it was, it was education light, but there was definitely, th- there was definitely things that you could pick up and stuff. And then just your appreciation for music and all these different things. And they made all that stuff cool. Um, When maybe some of it might not have been that cool for an audience of of, of that age or whatever. And then they, they also has, as Billy kind of mentioned uh, when he was asked about uh, that period of his life later, saying that it seemed like it was a lot of college kids t- into tuning. And I think it was very much of a, a cult phenomenon, Much maybe the way I think maybe peewee's playhouse might have been as well where you know i i think i think a lot of college kids you know would roll one up and watch the hilarious house of frighten's time <laughs> so uh, a double a second audience
1: a couple of years ago we had a fundraising event for the book and for the museum we had a short time there was a billy van museum in hamilton uh since closed but um we had a fundraiser and, and a couple of people were there like Tom Wilson from Junkhouse and all his different bands and Sue Foley, the blues musician were there and they both got up on stage and wrote a little bit, read out little bits from Billy's memoir, but they also talked about getting stoned and watching the show. <laughs> yeah. So back when they were, cause they were a little bit older than us, but yeah. still it was fascinating. And and there's some crazy stat that I found where crime in New York city actually went down when the show was on the air there, because you know, a lot of the, drug fiends or whatever were watching the show <laughs> instead of out creating yeah. trouble so yeah. who knows it, it it's a great story I hope it's true I put it uh, in the book
0: all of those Freightenstein fans who would have otherwise been out murdering people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah I, I just love that show growing up and then reading the book I you know I used to work at TVO and people used to talk about Billy quite often and then and then it wasn't until I read your book that I realized how many other shows he had done that that I was aware of, and I just didn't know that it was Billy Van from you know this other show I loved. Whether it was Bits and Bites or Bits and Bites Two, he also did uh, another show on fitness for people over forty. Uh, what was the show where he taught the? He played the robot that taught or the alien that taught people how to speak uh, English. It's just it's-
1: called how do you, how do you do?
0: How do you do? Right, that was another one. And then I started seeing all these photos in the book, and I was like, I've seen that. I've seen that. I used to watch that. But uh, and that was the thing about TVO is I've had other friends who've been on TBO. The beauty of that is that, you know, at one point there was only about two or three channels that anybody got in Ontario when that was one of them. So you knew those shows.
1: That's a big part of it. And that goes to the retro Ontario website, right? The, that Ed Conroy runs. I mean, he was a big help in the book, just helping me source some of those, those legends, right? There's a couple of different shows that only just existed briefly in people's memory and they were on the air once and gone. Um, there's, there's a, uh, the TVO years, the educational years for Billy were wonderful. Uh, they kept him working. He got in really good with David Stansfield and Denise Boiteau, who hired him to do Bits and Bytes. Uh, later Bits and Bites too. he did How Do You Do, where he was dressed up as a robot. The show that probably the most people know him from that's educational, yeah. and you may not even know it, is called Eureka. Oh, right. And Eureka, yeah. It, it was a physics cartoon. And he did the voice explaining whatever that thing was. He was explaining physics for over 30 years. Yeah, Like it was insane. Like, probably more kids have seen that than probably anything but Sonny and share at the top of his game and then he did yeah fitness over 40 and where he was you know this guy sitting on his butt and and trying to get out an exercise as he got older
0: or the cold 45 ads
1: well they were us so they're not really on here but yeah oh, they're cold not on 40, retro but it's important to note that cold 45 was Billy's biggest money maker in his entire life uh, yeah. he got in good with those people he did that for like more than a dozen years he didn't have to speak in any of the commercials and yet he had this gig that ran for years and years and the residuals and, it was probably the best thing he ever did. He got to be really great friends with the guy who ran it uh, mm. and to the point that his daughter, Tracy, called him Uncle Bill. So, yeah, and, and that's but that you mentioned earlier about the hustle, right? Mm. You had to do the hustle. He'd done all that things when he was younger, doing all the spiels on the radio and doing all the jingles and all those things you have to do to fill in the blanks in your career and make a few bucks. And so he got really lucky with Cold 45 and it, like I said, it, it made him a ton of money.
0: In the book, you talked about how he, when he put out, he wrote his own book, but he, he never released it. You said it was called Second Banana. And did you know why it is that he left so, so much out? Was he conflicted about what what was, you know, what he had done that was good and maybe not so much good or what people wanted to hear about? Or what was that? I found that interesting that he... He really left so much out. First of all, he was very private. A lot of people didn't really know much about his private life. He didn't talk about that. He was more, you know, when he was at work, he was professional and he, he chatted about the business and what was going on at hand. But he wasn't a very um, open person about his own personal life.
1: For sure. That's one of the things that came up again and again when I was talking to, you know, other celebrities, actors, directors, uh, whoever was to work with Billy at the time, they all talked about how much fun he was, how he can make everybody laugh how he was very professional and got the job done. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask them, well, what do you know about him personally? And they would stop and go, not much. Mm -hmm. Some of them knew his daughter, Tracy, because she came to a few different things. Uh, But nobody knew about his first daughter, Robin. He was married five times in that first high school relationship. uh, They had a daughter right away. And Billy saw her like two or three times. And then was out of her life Mm -hmm. until she was an adult. And then she came up to meet him as an adult and only met him once. So all those kind of things he left out, he was married, like I said, he was married five times, basically roughly 10 years of marriage. So I don't know, at some level, maybe he was embarrassed by that. Um, But yet all the wives still kept in touch with him, Mm -hmm. you know, all but Joan, who was in Florida and his first wife, they all went to his funeral. Yeah. So it's not like anybody was, was peeing on his grave or anything. They all still got along with him. Now, I'm sure some of the money and residuals and stuff he had to share uh, worked out okay. I, I couldn't get all those financial details. I sort of wish I could have, but you know some of the wives are gone. Um, so that, that part's really interesting, but he was a really private guy. And I think in this memoir, he really wanted to set more of a, a lessons learned tone. 'Cause he also tried to help struggling actors. He had a um a book that helped people get, you know, bookings and how to find talent agencies and things like right. that. And he ran a talent agency himself for a while. So he was yeah. deeply invested in the entertainment business. And I think he tried to be a bit of a mentor at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, for good or for bad.
0: Yeah. When you write a book about somebody like Billy Van, do you do you feel protective about him or you just kind of, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever comes to you, whatever the story is, that ends up on the page. Or do you have to think about because you wrote you wrote a chapter in the book called uh, Billy, the good, Billy, the bad. I think it was called. And, and you kind of talk about, you know, his life and then some of his difficulties and that sort of thing. When you write a chapter like that, do you get protectionist about the, the, the person you're writing about?
1: I'm not sure protectionist is quite the word. You do feel like, you know, him more mm-hmm. like I never met him at least yeah. stays the case my co-writer had met him uh and you feel like you're inhabiting his circle a little bit and you want to be more protective almost in some ways of the family that's still around sure. i made sure that both tracy and robin his daughters um were okay with what was in there and yeah. and to that matter um he had a stepson from his third marriage jamie who was the same age as tracy so they they led, led sort of parallel lives for a little while where you know the divorced daughter comes over and hangs out with the step brother that she doesn't really get along with. And they Mm -hmm. still don't really get along. They're not buddies by any means. You do feel a little bit protective, but then the other end of the the thing is that um, his last wife, Susan didn't want any part of the book. She Mm -hmm. still feels so close to Billy and even seeing Tracy will make her tear up and she can't deal with it. So she didn't want to be a part of this book. And I think it would have added a little bit more, uh, about billy what, what billy was like the last you know decade of his life as things were fading mm-hmm. for sure um so there's frustration too i guess not protectionist it's like i want to know more and you always want to know more uh and those little tidbits like uh you know what kind of booze he was drinking and hiding mm-hmm. you know the vodka whatever it is like those tidbits are gold to a writer yeah um and and it was the same the other the only other um biography i've done like this is about father bauer and he was a hockey coach and, and, a, and a priest. And so finding those little dirty tidbits was a lot harder with a guy like him. Right. Sure. You know, occasionally the guys would tell me about he'd sneak a smoke or he'd um, you know, he liked a little nip of, of vodka or cognac or whatever. So with Billy though, there was a lot more works and all um, mm-hmm. because a lot of people knew about his drinking. Uh, they all knew him down the bars and the beaches part of toronto uh those kind of things so a lot of it was already out there but it was never all pulled together and that's that was that's the biographer's job
0: yeah yeah no it was interesting you know and thinking that you were writing about uh him hanging out in some of the bars and uh in the beach and stuff and i i lived out in that that part of town around the end of his life and i thought you know i wonder where he was hanging out i might have might you know might have run into him in the bar one night with uh, with friends when we were out at one of the pubs and and uh, and not not have recognized him
1: that that is one of those things that come up so my brother-in-law is a was a comedian for a while um and he's been a big supporter of the book and and you know of course a friend for ever but um he posted it on his facebook page and one of his friends said Oh yeah, I used to work at a bar. Billy was in there all the time. It's like, where were you when when I was writing this book? But that, that's the the natural part of these books too, is that you find out things after the fact that you wish you could have included. Yeah, and you just have to live with it. You can't let it eat at you.
0: Yeah, one of the other dynamics in the book is is something that we talk about a lot about as uh, Canadian uh, performers is that dance between, um, you know, going to the U.S. Um, you know what kind of success you can get down there, and maybe you know there, there's so many Canadians. It used to be a thing that Canadians would go down, and I know so many young people who did would go down to uh, to Los Angeles for pilot season, and they'd hang around for about a month and stay in a in a motel and and go out and grind and try to get parts and stuff. And some people would, and where they work down there for a little bit and then come back or stay, or some people became you know big stars in their own right. But that was always the the, the dance that Canadian performers did. You know, figuring out whether or not that was their place or not, and and billy did that he, he was down there for quite a while and had a huge success working with uh, Sonny and share uh on their show uh, but he was he was he was dismayed by that he wasn't uh, he wasn't a, he wasn't fan of the the hollywood lifestyle was he
1: it, uh, it those would probably be one of the questions i'd really ask him if i ever got a chance to go back in time because there's a little bit of a mixed message his he tells some really fun stories in his memoir um but You wonder how true some of them are. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, it's like he does tell the story of getting mugged. And he was in a hotel room mugged at gunpoint. Right. And that really colored him about how Hollywood worked, how Los Angeles worked, how different it was than Canada. Uh, And yet that was early in his time in, in L.A. So he then later brought his third wife down and her son. And they had a couple of different houses around California. So... While the mugging certainly colored things for him, it didn't drive him out of town. Mm-hmm. What really drove him out of town was just that sheer hustle, right? Yeah. And and the sheer volume of people, just like you described, right? You'd go to a, an audition and you'd see people who were successful actors on other shows trying out for these things. And you just sort of shrug and go, well, I probably don't have a chance of doing, getting this gig. Yeah. Whereas in Toronto, he was a, a big fish in a little pond. And down there, he was a you know little fish in the very, very big pond. But the success, like almost anything in life, is about who you know. Yeah. And Alan Bly certainly looked out for him a ton, who he knew from singing back in the 50s on CBC. And Alan Bly worked with Chris Beard. You know, they did all kinds of things down there, including Sonny and Cher. So he had his guardian angels, for sure, down there in California.
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting because you mentioned that, that he, you know, back home in toronto or in canada he was constantly being stopped on the streets and and you know people wanted autographs and wanted to hear stories and that sort of thing and uh you you say in the book that that didn't happen in los angeles because like you said he was uh you know he was he was a small fish in a massive pond in an ocean and uh and uh but on the other hand uh you know he was much of more of a hands-on father when he lived in los angeles because he he perhaps he was he, what he did have more, you know, he wasn't being engaged all the time from fans like he would be at home. So it's a bit of a a double edged sword in that regard as well.
1: Yeah. and That's again, that's why it would have been really neat to explore that with him and, and just understand what drove him back here. He came back to Toronto. He tried to run a talent agency. He tried to do some different other work, right? He ran little businesses on the side, which were fascinating in and of themselves. And, uh, as a lot of life comes to luck, too, doesn't it? I mean, I went down to talk to Jack Cooper, who somebody told me, you know, oh, he was on CBC in the 50s. And then I sit down with Jack and he goes, oh, yeah, well, then I later became Billy's landlord. Well, what mm-hmm. do you mean? Well, Billy's office was in the building I owned, So right. I would use them occasionally on on commercials I was doing or whatever. So, you know, as a writer, you need some luck sometimes too to get those kind of stories and find the right people.
0: Yeah, it's a different kind of business to the entertainment business. Even to this day, I'll often tell people that can't remember an instance in my life where I ever got a job somewhere through HR, through just, you know, submitting a, a resume. Um, it's always been through people that I've worked with and who have mentioned me or hired me or whatever. And that's kind of just, it's unique to, to the entertainment business that people, you often just get, you know, brought back by the same people you work with th- that like you and, and want to work with you. And and that seemed to be, you know, that was that was a big part of Billy's life as well.
1: Absolutely. he Well, because they knew he could do the job. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, right? He was professional. He was on time. He liked the work. And he didn't create distractions he didn't have his his demons at at work kind of thing so mm-hmm. of course you want to use him again and again that that's a pattern that repeats throughout his life for sure
0: yeah yeah I was online looking at uh, some of uh, some videos that uh, that are still available out there uh, and that I pulled up on YouTube but I think some of them were from Retro Ontario, but, uh, him doing, um, you know, sing songy ads from way back in the day. And then of course the quote 45 spots that we talked about. And, uh, he did a lot of advertising. He did a lot of advertising.
1: And, and, his uh, his wife probably even did more. So Patty Van Ever, his second wife, like she was the queen of of all those jingles. She was out yeah. there forever doing those. And uh, Billy found a little bit more work doing other things while she was out doing that. It's just part of the hustle, right? You found these extra little pieces to work. and Billy recognized there was value to that. So that's partly why the Billy Van singers existed. Mm-hmm. And they were like a gang for hire. And they could go over to England and, and work for, you know, a couple of weeks. And their voices would be very unique on on British radio or British TV. Yeah. Um, so they'd get all that work over there. And the most famous gig, course, was Spider-Man. They, yeah. they sang the Spider-Man theme song, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Billy was not on that, but he was part of it, organizing it. And so his wife and his sister-in-law are both on there singing that original song. Yeah. And of course, I got to interview Spider-Man himself, Paul Soles, for the book. <laughs> So it's like, talk about a mark out moment, getting all excited. It's like, I'm talking to Spider-Man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What is it that surprised you the most writing this book about Billy Van uh, that you learned about, about him and his life?
1: I guess the biggest surprise having read his memoir first and then sort of really diving in was all the little shows, Mm -hmm. right? Those one-off shows, those things that never went anywhere. Um, the, the pilots that you dig up that are forgotten for all time, mm-hmm. right? And there's there's those in California, there's those here in Toronto, there's just all these little things. It's the what ifs, I guess, right? And the biggest what if in the whole book uh is that I found a couple of different references where he said that he'd been offered a spot on MASH. Right. And imagine that, you know, but he was tied into a sunny and chair and he couldn't do it. Now, if he'd been on MASH, how different would have his life had turned out? So yeah
0: I wonder what he was but we offered. all have
1: those we all have those what- ifs right what yeah. what if what if bad dog turned into some international superstar
0: yeah yeah well and you never know until you put yourself out there but for sure there are those moments where you uh the trains uh, miss each other <laughs> in the night I don't know if I'm mixing metaphors but uh yeah yeah I think every uh, every entertainer has uh got a good story about the one that they missed
1: absolutely yeah no and and I have those stories too they're just not quite as exciting it's like book deals you didn't get or whatever but uh, or people you didn't get the interview that you know you'd exchange messages with and then they pass on or something there's a few of those guys i wish we'd gotten to bob einstein super dave himself yeah um you know i'd sort of reached out and didn't get him for the book uh yeah but i mean that's life right there's always going to be what ifs and things you wish you'd done
0: yeah yeah and super dave well he passed away probably right around the same time you were proofing the book and getting it ready to put out
1: absolutely yeah he died while i was working on the book and uh you know it's unfortunate but that happens right so yeah
0: so uh this is a book about billy van but also the city of toronto was a big character in the book
1: absolutely and i think that gets overlooked he was a toronto icon right Mm -hmm. his dad used to you know uh, worked down at the old Sunnyside Pavilion and helped organize the acts there. So Billy met a lot of Vaudeville people and things right from the start. Then his dad ran the C&E concessions. Yeah. So Billy would meet the, some of the stars there at the CNE. and uh, You know, the different jobs they all did, like Billy delivered milk for a while in the city, you know, went to school there and high school and dropped out. One of the guys he went to high school with was Maury Safer, who later went on the 60 Minutes. Yeah all these kind of things. And then he just becomes part of the fabric of the city. And I love that, right. You know, whether it was at the CBC and being able to describe, you know, the celebrity club where they all drank or the, the, his house out in Scarborough and, and how that was a cottage back in the day. Yeah. You know, he had a, a an apartment downtown, but went to the cottage, which was Scarborough. Yeah. So it was just such a place, uh, uh, you know, it was a different time for sure than it is today. And I'm not sure Billy would do very well in social media world.
0: Yeah it's 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 interesting I, I got the same feeling when i was reading your book than i that i did not long ago when i read uh, robbie robertson's book robbie robertson uh you know rock legend from um from the band and uh robbie he had lived in scarborough in different parts of the city and and uh you know he they in the book they rhyme off all these different addresses in the city on gerard street and i'm trying to imagine exactly where that is and while i was reading your book you know you're naming off you know the the house on davenport and the one out and on uh, whatever that, that i forget what they probably the cliffside because uh he lived right off uh, over near the Bluffs, I guess, and uh, just rhyming off all these different addresses. And I'm trying to picture where these are and, and, and you know, when how close to a, the, some of those those uh, houses I lived uh, uh, close by at one point. And just thinking of all the amazing stories of people who have lived in, in little houses all over the city. You know, Billy Van is, is one of them in his family, but um, there's so many great stories out there, you know
1: and that's that's our job as writers to to try to keep some of that alive yeah. you know again you wish you got more but i was happy with what i did get and even just little things like you know when you go to the toronto archives and you you dig up a little ad for the the milk company that he delivered for right and mm-hmm. you throw that in there it's just a little visual break and that but it's neat right and and in the end you want a book to be memorable for both the text but In this case, I, there were a lot of the visuals too, and we got some great photos from the families. We got some great photos from CBC, um, and a few other different sources. So yeah, I, am really proud of this book.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so this is a book too. Well, I think all of your books are like this because especially wrestling books, I mean, you've been, you've been writing about wrestling for a couple of decades now and, uh, and your fans oh so the wrestling fans are are intense they they love they love the sport and they love the characters you probably get a similar response to the kind of people who would be uh, billy van fans and so now that the book's been out for a little while uh have you been surprised by the reaction or what sort of reaction do you get or uh you know how have people how have people approached you having read the book
1: it's been really neat but it's also such a hustle too right yeah. because you want those people be to get out there and, and tell other people about the book, because it's self-published. It's a mm-hmm. whole different thing. It's not on Amazon. So you need to, you know, preach the hustle, I guess, in a way. Uh it's for every phone call you get from the people that are in the book, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, how much they love it, and revisiting old friends then you hear the people saying, wow, I'm just blown away about how much I learned, Yeah. right? How much I learned about Billy, how much I learned about, you know, Frightenstein, which was my favorite show, how much I loved hearing from Dinah Christie, who's, you know, a Canadian gem that never gets talked about. So all these different things add up to, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. And it's a, uh, uh, it's a unique project for sure. And I'm glad uh, we finally got around to doing it. The pandemic sort of our hand a little bit in that okay i got time i got no excuse so let's get it done it it was a bit of a leap of faith but it's it's paying off for sure um but we have you know the facebook groups and twitter and wherever it is that people are talking about it that's what you want
0: yeah yeah yeah. Well, you said you'd gotten a grant way back when you told me that you've, you know, basically, uh, you know, this has spanned a decade from from the first talk of the conception to uh, publishing and, and putting it out there. And uh, and uh, thank you for doing it. I'm mean, like I said, I, I was a huge fan and I'm a fan even more so now Billy Van for having read the book and learned so much more about, you know, uh, the kind of consummate artist he was and all the other things that he did throughout his career to to uh, advance his career and to to, you know, to put food and, you know, and plates for his family and, and homes and all that kind of stuff that we all need to do uh but it was really it was really interesting to read uh, uh you know about the fuller story of uh billy van not just the guy who played those eight crazy characters on that show that i used to watch for a brief period in the in the 1970s as a kid so uh thanks for that and uh it was it was really a, a great read and and i enjoyed it very much so so thank you for sharing billy's uh, story with us
1: cool well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, David, and that's that's the goal, right? I, I think you get a different vibe just because you're an actor, as we said off from the outset, that you know you're you're getting little things out of it that maybe your average fan isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that's uh, yeah, I love that challenge to entertain different levels of people. Uh, my father-in-law couldn't get through it; he found it a little boring. Oh well, you know, he's 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 82. You know, he's not maybe going to enjoy it the way those of us who love this guy do.
0: Yeah. You're working on a next project now, or uh, have you always got one or two in the hopper?
1: The uh, the big thing right now is the hustle. It's, it's billyvan.ca to get the book. Mm-hmm. But um, there is another book coming out. It should be March. It's from ECW Press. And it's this fascinating tale about this guy who was involved in wrestling, baseball, and country music. And the short version is, you know, he was a wrestling fan started a wrestling radio show in the, in the seventies, yeah. uh, went to school for journalism, decided he wanted to get involved in baseball, was in minor league baseball, went to the bar, saw a fabulous singer, decided to be a music manager. Yeah. And that turned out to be Patty Loveless, who's okay. a country music superstar. Yeah, So he ends up trying to work in the music business for years, goes back to wrestling then walks away from wrestling and is in country music for 20 years, you know, right. as an executive in different ways. Right. So I, I needed challenges. I don't, didn't really want to do the wrestling side of things, but it's everything else that I learned about. Right. It was fascinating. Sure. Learning about country music it was fascinating. Learning about minor league baseball and uh, his, his two of his roommates were JP Riccardi and John Gibbon. Right. So, you know, talk about a tie to Toronto right there. Yeah. Um, the former general manager manager. So, that's coming out in March, late March, early April. And then after that, it's a little bit of a hiatus. I'm not exactly sure what's next. I'm working on a, with a couple of people on other projects, like a documentary, things like that. You just don't know what's next and yeah. part of the fun, I guess.
0: Yeah. But you're constantly still writing about wrestling though, right? Yeah.
1: So I still run the slam wrestling.net yeah. website, which started in 19, late 1996. Not a lot of websites have been around that long. <laughs> yeah. let alone producing. Uh, top-notch uh content like we've done so it's uh it's been a lot of fun and a real uh, it keeps me involved with today's scene i guess and like a little like we talked about with billy i'm mentoring young writers yeah right so we might have somebody who's 20 years old and and is real enthusiastic about wrestling and they need a little bit of guidance so i'm i'm there to help and that that refreshes me in a different way
0: in the grand scheme of things, you've written and curated a lot of the stories about professional wrestling. And when people look back and, and, and whatever, you know, Google in the future, whatever people are using to, to source all that material, your name is going to come up again and again and again and again and again. That's pretty cool.
1: It is really cool. And, and we, we had a deal with post media and we got cut from there in the early days of COVID. Mm -hmm. and uh so we have to set out on our own but the good thing is a lot of that's coming back right google still likes us and recognizes quality of work and and references from other people so we've been rebuilding a lot but you're right it's it's all out there we've done more documenting of pro wrestling maybe than just about any other site out there and it's not just the big names it's the little names right yeah like for every mad dog vachon which is awesome you know you can talk to uh the Knockoff Butcher Vachon that they used to have out in the Maritimes, who wasn't related at all. So you know, there's there's just stories everywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. So now, if people want to pick up a copy of Who's the Man Billy Van, they can go to OliverBooks.ca, and then you mentioned there's a Billy Van
1: OliverBooks.ca <laughs> or just BillyVan.ca,
0: and they can order a hard copy and have it sent to them asap.
1: Something like that. Yeah. Down the road, we'll probably do the proper uh, ebook, but you know, for now, there's. There was a thousand books in my garage, but there's not any more, thankfully. They continue to go out the door regularly. And uh, I appreciate that there's so many Billy Van fans out there that, uh, you know, want to learn more about them.
0: Yeah, well, I I would encourage anybody who's a Billy Van fan or just, uh, you know, interested in reading about sort of old time Hollywood or vaudeville days and and uh, sort of old showbiz and how fascinating that was to pick up a copy. Like I said, it was a great read and I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think others will. So uh, they should go check that out.
1: I appreciate the, uh, the praise. Thanks, David. Greg, it was, it was wonderful talking to you.
0: Hopefully it doesn't take us another 17 years before we do this again, <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for your time. It was, it was fantastic chatting with you.
1: Cool. All right. Thanks for all the time, David. Have a great one.
0: All right. All the best. <laughs> There you have it, my conversation with Greg Oliver. Be sure to visit oliverbooks.ca to pick up your copy of Who's the Man, Billy Van. Also, while we're talking business, just wanted to put it out to you that one way you can help me reach more potential listeners is by taking a minute or two to leave a comment or review in the appropriate section wherever you stream the podcast. If you do so, I would be more than happy to feature your comments in an upcoming episode. Furthermore, if you would like to support the show, you can do so by making a small monthly pledge by visiting patreon.com slash cool story with David J. McNeil. Patreon being spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Also, thanks again to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida. Everybody's had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story. What's yours?